that you're born an Italian If you want your life to be great See that you're born an Italiano And your life will be great From the moment you're a small bambino You eat pizza, you drink vino Then they make you roly-poly You get stuffed with ravioli Your mama's a paisano You will have the world on a plate So see that you're born an Italiano And your life will be great Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the Italian American Podcast. I'm John Viola here today with Rosella Rago and the notorious POB Pat O'Boyle for a very special episode with a guest we've been looking forward to having on the show for quite some time. So, first of all, guys, welcome back. Good to be together again. Yeah, great to be with you guys again. Pat missed our trip last week, but Ro and I got to spend a bunch of time in Scranton and the surrounding areas. You were obviously very impressed. We were. You said all very nice stuff. On and off the record. There's really nothing like filming exteriors for a show in the middle of winter in Pennsylvania. <laughs> you were going to uh, kill me. <laughs> you were so unhappy. Oh, you were thrilled? Like you were <laughs> no, exhilarated by the cold? It was, <laughs> was it fun for you? No, it was cold. That was really, but I'll tell you what, I was really impressed by the area. Yeah, it was, oh, it was a nice area. The pizza was good. The people were really friendly. We had our producer stephanie show us around and she's just like an italian mary poppins if you will yeah she is and she like knows everyone and everyone was was sweet and nice and really welcoming it was like going to like springfield on the simpsons like everybody knew each other yeah. all the characters were, i felt like we were <laughs> in an italian american springfield you know who was flanders if you had to pick a flanders <laughs> that's a good question i think we must have come across a couple I think Stephanie could be like a female Flanders because I could totally see her going like, googly doogly, neighbor. <laughs> yes. Stephanie is like a Italian American Betty Crocker. Such a great uh, tour guide for the area and such a passionate supporter of it and champion of it. So for those of you out there who watch us on YouTube, uh, you could definitely look forward to a show or maybe two on some of the great stuff we did out there. And then we're going to get back on the road at the end of the month. So that's kind of exciting, too. Yeah, totally. It was a lot of fun. Yeah, it was good. I really enjoyed that. And I'm looking forward to the road trip. I don't know, Ro, I really think we should rent an RV and do this, all of us in an RV. I mean, that has to be a full length documentary, though. <laughs> if it's RV, like the IARV. We <laughs> yeah. all need like body cams and stuff. We need to like document every moment. Yeah, we should have like a confessional in the back. We can go yeah. in and complain about people. I was like thinking road about that. rules, right? Yeah, like exactly. On TV. Yeah, I was thinking like, okay, if we're going to do this in an RV, which, by the way, it's probably only a, a week or so of travel. So it's not like we're living there for months. But I was like, you think I can get plastic covers for the RV couches and, you know, maybe some Capo di Monte lamps? We can make it feel like home a little bit. That would be kind of <laughs> <laughs> a real Italian-American trailer. So We we'll would see. let Pat decorate it. Yeah, Pat would be in charge of decor. Yeah. Uh, Pat, I really hope you make this one. His, his, he had uh, some dental work the last time we traveled, but this time you got to come out. So he says... I mean, I think he lies. No, it's God's honest truth. I was in agony because I, 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 I feel like you lie to get out of filming all the time. No, you, no, I would. You I, dodged I, I, the Diker Heights episode, which was preposterous because we had a four hundred pound bowl of seafood salad. <laughs> this one, you just you all right? You didn't feel like it was a little cold. It was a little far. Okay, you got a toothache. No, that 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 is completely incorrect. 
<laughs> that is the epitome of incorrect. Because I really did want to go. Yeah. I honestly did want to go. You love places like this. Exactly. I wrote, I respect you too much that I would never lie to you. Wow. Uh, okay. I respect you too much to lie to you. That's love. No, I had, I lost, I'll be honest with you, I lost, I lost the feeling during the lockdown. It was the first opportunity I had to have it filled. All right. That's painful too. And the dentist said to me, like, it's this stuff done now because, you know, no, I have a very special place in my heart for screen. The best thing Pat said to me when he told me he couldn't make it was, he goes, uh, you know, I got to go in. It's the only time the dentist could take me. And he's like, and even if I, if I didn't have the appointment and I go there and I can't eat, what kind of torture is that? <laughs> Which was, that was, that was very point. true. So what am I going to go there and watch you and John eat? Oh, that's fantastic. <laughs> wow. What a nice pizza. That's great. Can I take a picture? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I have a tremendous connection to Scranton on my father's side. That's right. You do. I'm related to half the city of Scranton because all the immigrants. Half the city. Yeah, no, it's no joke. All my father's family on my Irish side. But I had a very, I always have an affinity for Scranton. There's something special about Scranton. They, were, they had horrible life. I mean, if you read the accounts of how those people suffered in those coal mines. Oh, it's terrible. Oh, it's horrible. I mean, it's absolutely, absolutely horrible. They were walking around with like open flames on their heads and bombs in their back pockets. Yeah, it, <laughs> it was bad. Yeah. It was really bad. It was, I mean, it's a testament to so many tiny American families in the coal belt of the America, you know, Ohio and Pennsylvania. And like, it, we don't even think about it. The New York Italians, New Jersey Italians, we have no context for what those people lived. But that's part of what I loved about being there was, you know, I will say the pizza that they bragged about this old forge style pizza and it's a great segue into our guest today because I think Bro and I were both very pleasantly surprised. They called themselves the pizza capital of the world, Old Forge, Pennsylvania. And man, did this stuff live up to the hype. And we started having this conversation while we were there. Like there's a million different versions of pizza. You can't really judge them against one another. And our guest today is an author and an expert on so many interesting topics, but his blog, Pizza and Coffee, is one that Rosella introduced to me and actually talks about a lot of this stuff. And I just have enjoyed so much reading his blog. I, I laugh so hard. So, Ro, why don't you introduce our guest for today? Guys, everybody welcome my friend Gianluca Rotuda. He is the author of Wine Made Easy and the owner of In Vino Veritas, one of the Upper East Side's oldest and best wine shops in Manhattan. And uh, he's a true blue New Yorker through and through. Gianluca, thanks for coming on today. Oh, thank you all very much for having me. That was a very nice introduction. Thank you. I mean, Vino Veritas is a landmark. I didn't realize until reading Stephanie's research that you guys were, your family came into it in the 90s, but uh, first liquor store, then it was a liquor store, opened in Manhattan after Prohibition. Yeah, it's believed to be that one. That's what we were told, uh, to make the long story short, after Prohibition ended, there were maybe three owners before I took over, maybe four. My father bought the building uh, 40 years ago, and that's what they told him, like the original owners there. And, and, and so we were told it was the first, and then we completely renovated it and uh, transformed it to look like what seems to be more common now, but back then was not. Uh, we gave it an Italian touch. Uh, back in the 90s, it was a different world, and I miss it now, those kind of neon signs. It had a neon sign. It said liquors. And, you know, kind of like in Moonstruck, you know, that liquor store in Moonstruck? Oh, yeah. Yes. yeah. So my father, he was an entrepreneur and he decided to vamp it up, not just the look of it, but also the selection and staff it with me and my brother who are knowledgeable about the wine. And we unearthed a lot of 
old things in uh, in the place. We have this stained glass from the 1800s. And that's part of what it's famous for, right? It's, it's a landmark, really. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it is. And we even have, I mean, so the stained glass is from the 1800s. We, it was painted over. So we, we first we thought it was just a front. Then we realized it wrapped around the corner. We unearthed it. We did piece by piece. They relettered everything. And um, we even have a, a sign that was outside the telephone exchange. It's Butterfield 8 and then our number. And it's still our number. We still have those two numbers. Wow. The telephone exchange back then is when you would call the operator. And you would say, operator, give me Butterfield, B-U of the Butterfield is 2-8 on the phone. That's the way you would call people. In fact, they even made a movie called Butterfield 8. Liz Taylor played a prostitute. She won, a, I think she won an Oscar for it. And that's still her phone number. And uh, you look at the store. It's like a, it has this museum era look to it. And it's like walking into a place 100 years ago. And uh, it's all my father. And he, you know, he did all of it. I still know the Jersey City letter um, telephone numbers. Because my grandmother would say, call somebody to dial oh, from yeah. OL65967. Uh-huh. Oh, they were Oldfield. Old, yeah. OL32374. My neighborhood was Evergreen, EV. EV. It was, uh, it was still on a lot of the signs back then, even in the 80s and 90s. How many people listening to this have no idea what that is? We should make business cards yes. and have the two letters with throw uh, <laughs> off all these hipsters. You, you got to make, make a business card with those. You, you know, they would probably find that really cool. It would take them about three months to figure it out. How are they going to text Butterfield Bay? Yeah, 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 yeah. I don't know. These are the sick things that I, I kind of find amusing. <laughs> I would have a, what's your number? Butterfield Day. Okay. Interesting story about the story and Pat about Butterfield Day. This is a great story. This yeah, shows this- that there is a God. Yes. And so I was supposed to do your guys' show last year uh, in February, March, or whatever. COVID happened. I'm not even going to be – I got COVID. I almost died. Unfortunately, my father oh, my. did pass from it. That's a whole other story. So I was supposed to do it right before that. I did an interview with, you know, Anthony Celia? Uh-huh. Do we, yeah, know, sure. do we know Anthony Celia? Oh, yeah. He's a good friend of ours. I get a text from him on a daily basis. He's, a, he's one of the nicest guys. And he, he was nice enough to do the interview with me. And when we're all done, we're talking this and that. And he goes, hey, yeah. And he was talking about, I think he was talking about the podcast and he mentioned Patrick and he mentioned the name and I'm like, oh, and he's like, oh yeah, he's Italian. I'm like, what? He goes, yeah, yeah, no, he's hundred percent. He speaks Neapolitan. The first thing I thought of, the second he said that, my mind, I didn't say anything, but my mind went to like seven, eight years before. At least, yeah. at least. So this guy who came to my store and I remember, I didn't say anything because I was like, what's the chances? Then later on, I'm listening to the podcast. I'm like, this sounds, and I asked Rosella, I'm like, I'm just curious. This guy came into my store a long time ago. Does he look like this, talk like this? She goes like, yeah, it sounds like him. I saw a picture of Pat. I'm like, it's got to be him. I reached out to him and he's like, of course, I remember you. I remember your father. I remember the whole walked thing. into your store because you had a two Sicilies banner or emblem, <laughs> the kingdom of Naples in your window. In the, in the window, I have like a whole like shrine of things. I have a AS Roma scarf. I have the Ten Neapolitan Commandments. I Maybe have... that was it. I remember there was something in the window. Yeah. There was bait on your hook <laughs> of why I walked in. Because yeah. I, I can remember it like, like it was yesterday. Yeah. I was actually walking downtown, and I don't know, because the higher up you go, the cheaper you park. <laughs> yeah, and then you came in, and we had a great conversation. Absolutely. And usually when I talk to people, I, I know what to say, but sometimes I know I go a little too far, and people are like, oh, this guy is too much. You know, so... I gave Pat some of my thoughts and he was loving it. And I was like, oh my God, this is too good to be true. And he's, he's very intelligent and knowledgeable. Thank you. That's very kind of you. Thank yeah. And then, and then we were talking, I still remember when I was telling you how Italy's the downfall of Italy 
And I said, you go to a supermarket and Pat stops me and slams the counter and he goes, and everything's frozen. I'm like, oh my God, this guy knows. <laughs> no, you two are, I mean, I, I've not met you before this, but reading your blog, I kept saying to myself, I always thought Pat and I were kindred spirits, you know? And we always say we're going to be the uh, last two Italians, like the, the two Muppets in the balcony, just complaining about everything. But And now you guys found another Muppet. No, because, no, <laughs> you stop. Yeah. Campania produces geniuses. <laughs> of course. We are, we well. are the, the problem is that they're like a little bit off where they can philosophize life. They just can't, we just can't tie our shoes. If God had given us the full range of power, Campania would rule the entire world. I mean, your family's from Campania, am I correct? So my mother is from the, the province of Salerno. It's, it's a small town. It's, it, no one would ever know it. What is it? What town is it? it it's Macchia. Where is it by? It's next to, it's actually part of Monte Corvino Novella, but it's actually right next to Battivaglia. So I just tell people Battivaglia. Oh, sure. It's a beautiful area. Uh, my wife is from Sarno, so it's the, the northern part yes, of Sarno. Yes, we know that area very well. They were all in the Bronx, the people from Sarno. The Bronx and Upper Manhattan, yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of people from, yes. Oh, Fasano, Fasano. Anthony Fasano has family from Sarno. Oh, wow. Oh, really? Yes, yes. But it is perfect that you guys met before that yeah providence providence sure maybe it is providence maybe we can call it the campagna connection but whatever the reason is i gotta say when rose sent me your blog pizza and coffee which i highly recommend for our listeners out there at pizzaandcoffee.com i was kind of blown away because as i'm reading you know like i say earlier you're definitely kind of telling it as it is and so as i'm reading this stuff i swear I'm, i'm hearing you having not met you before I'm hearing Pat's voice in my head because this is a lot of the same stuff that he likes to say. It's a fantastic blog. It's really entertaining and educational, which is obviously our goal here at the show. So you're doing a great job with it. No, first of all, thanks again for having me. It wasn't just pizza and coffee. It's also a blog. I don't know if you guys checked it out. Piazza Life? No, I didn't see that. Yeah, that's where I really go on rants. So it's... (laughs) Wow, I've never seen Piazza. I only know you... I think pizza and coffee is is what I started reading, I think... Even before I ever met you in person, I started reading yeah. pizza and coffee and I was like, wow, this guy's friggin' deranged, but in like <laughs> a really great way. Piazza life is, I don't update it regularly, but it's just me talking about a different, a lot of different things. I interviewed a lot of people and Piazza life in Italy, you have the Piazza. That's where people go and talk and share their, I mean, nowadays everyone's on their phone, but it, you go there and you share. So it's, it was, it was a place to gather and, and, and access all this different information. So I wrote articles about uh, the capers, which I shared on social media. I wrote articles about, you know, how capitalism is a great equalizer. For instance, the Terroni in Italy. Now they come here and the people who used to call them Terroni are working for Southern Italians in America. So you, there's all these interesting things about it. Yeah. And so, so doing these two blogs and really kind of putting your opinions on a lot of topics out there, but really the core of who you are is a wine expert. One of the most important wine stores in obviously New York, also really the country, particularly for Italian wines. That's what everybody knows Vino Veritas for. And of course you have uh, now in its second edition, your book, Wine Made Easy, which you know for me has been a really enjoyable addition to my understanding, to my far too limited understanding of wine. You make it very, very simple for everybody. You talk about very broad stroke ideas of where wine comes from, how we look at it. Uh, I, I really enjoy your writing on the ideas of how you pair wine, even for pizza and things like that. And so I know your father bought the business and you and your brother were sort of placed there to run this thing at a very young age. How, how did this happen? How did you get into wines and the wine business? And how does this become your area of expertise? Uh, I was pretty much born into it. As I said before, my father was an entrepreneur. 
to make the long story short, his his main career was a hairdresser. He just he just so happened he happened to be very talented, and he was like the top hairdresser to. He cut Bloomberg's hair, didn't he? Everybody in New York. To everybody, you Google. I mean, he cut mostly women's hair. But speaking of Italian, like all the Italian aristocratic, the Fendi family, Ferragamo family, Auntie Nori, all of them. He cut all the movie stars' hair. All all those people. But he was very quiet. You never you would never know it. So he came up with this idea. He's like, you know, let me open a restaurant. And my cousins are, 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 were in the restaurant business. They joined together. My father left. He opened in 84. He left in 95. It's still there. It's some of the best restaurants you can go to. One, The one he opened is called Sistina. Anyway, so I grew up in, in the restaurant business. After school, if I wasn't getting in trouble, I was there. <laughs> so th- that's just everything I had to do. And, you know, my grandfather, by profession, he was a winemaker and olive, an olive oil maker. Everyone in my family makes wine just for fun. But after he left, my father... In his building, he has uh, the, there was a liquor store there, a wine store. It was really a liquor store more than a wine store. They were going to retire. So my father said, it's a perfect opportunity. And my brother and I were interested. I was only 18 years old. I was still in college. I just started college. Wow. So we, we were always involved in wine. I was always drinking wine as a kid. And I was around it in the restaurant. And I was always involved in wine dinners at the restaurant. My father always would make me go to these dinners and say, you know, listen, make sure you listen. So it was a no-brainer. So it was kind of like a seamless transition. And um, obviously, while I was in college, my brother was four years older than I, is four years older than I, and he was there more often. So he does all the buying. And then after college, I just, I spent all my time there. And I realized that as I wrote the book, I learned it more because I do believe that writing is a form of thinking. And you might know a lot of stuff, but you realize how much you know and how better you'll know it once you start writing it down. That's brilliant. Oh, that's, that's like a T-shirt. <laughs> that's true. Yeah. That's like the greatest. Yeah. I'm sorry. I'm going to interrupt you. That's. I just want. That was a wow moment. You know, like when they ring the bells at Mass and Genuflect. That was a wow moment. That was a ring the bell moment. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. So actually, my next book, my next project, I'm, I'm including that about about writing. And so yeah, thank you. I do explain it very easily. And wine made easy. I realize wine is a very scary topic for some people, and I think. I know that they're afraid of it and the people in it kind of get a kick out of being snobby about it. Yeah. So like the book is titled Wine Made Easy, subtitled Learn Wine in No Time, Match Wine and Food Like a Pro, Impress Your Wine Snob Friends. <laughs> That's well said. Yes, thank you. And it's it looks like a legal pad. It looks like a school book or like a, you know, something. I wanted to take 99% of the people understood that what I try to do, I wanted to take the fear out of it. I didn't want this book to look serious at all. I want it to look like your notebook in high school. But I, I do feel that, you know, you can really show how much you know of a subject if you can break it down simply. Yeah. It's no different than, than a million other things. And w- so with wine, what I did is I, I view everything mathematically. So I break everything down. And as I was helping the customers navigate uh, the wines, because also don't forget, we specialize in Italian wines. And European wines already, that's you're dealing with a language barrier you're dealing with classifications. They don't, they don't list a grape on the label. They go by the region. So how the hell are you going to know the region? Right. You know, it's like saying Williamsburg wine. What if you're from Ohio? You don't know what Williamsburg is. That's right. You're right. Yeah. Yeah. So they're slightly changing that, but 99% of all European wines, they go by, by, by the, by the place. So I like to diagram everything and I like to write everything out. So I so, so as I was helping customers, I realized as I'm helping them, I can, I can, let me just write this down and I'm very, as Rosella said, I go on these rants. During the busy season of December 2002, I was 24 years old. I sat down 
And I banged the book out in four weeks just because I, I couldn't, I had to get it out, out there. And it doesn't discuss all the wines because there's thousands of wines. It's impossible to do that. But just the wines that you need to know and should know. And for instance, just uh, Patrick was talking about Campania. We'll talk about Campania. You'll see the map of Italy. There's Campania. Campania is known for these reds, these whites, these rosés, and these sparklings. Which whites, for instance, Fiano di, di Avellino, Greco di Tufa. What does Fiano taste like? It tastes like this, this, and this. It goes with this. Greco tastes like this. So it doesn't, you don't need to know all these things. I, can, I could have talked about soils and how the soil affects, but the customer doesn't need to know that because I was looking at all these wine books and I love them, but even I get bored at looking at a, a 500 page wine book sure. that goes on and on and on about something. And the customer doesn't need that. Well, that's the thing about wine. I mean, you make a great point. First of all, there's an industry built around mythology, right? Yes. And it's like the Wizard of Oz. If you see behind the curtain, you're not going to believe the magic, right? Mm -hmm. So there's part of it that is a natural kind of snobbery to the topic. But there's also part of it that it's lucrative to be snobby and, and secretive about a topic because if people know they're not going to waste money on something that's overpriced because the label art is good and it, you know, it's got a brand behind it. Yeah. And on top of all that, You've also got this sort of language and glossary that has built up around it that is, you know, you got to learn a whole sort of set of, I mean, like when somebody says to me, you know, oh, you'll love this wine. It's, it's very palate frontal heavy and you taste the tannins. I don't know what the hell that means. That means nothing to me that, you know, I, I can't picture that. But if you say to me like, oh, no, it pairs well with this. And like, you notice it's this. If you can translate that for people, it's not a foreign experience you're drinking one of the oldest alcohols in the world you're drinking something that's been around forever so yeah. it's relatable if people will tear back the curtain and relate can, can i tell you what my my theory is why this happens and why this happens in the united states yes i was once in a very high-end manhattan restaurant as a plus one for a lawyer friend of mine they were celebrating a very big um matter that, that they had handled and you could have paid off the foreign debt of many small developing countries for what they paid for this meeting. And one thing that they were ooing and eyeing over was a plate of white gondolina beans with oil, parsley, and garlic. <laughs> and I'm not trying to play the all oh, the peasant food, but like this is like my entire life with my grandma made. You're paying for this, I would have gotten a lobster, crab with spaghetti, urch, sea urchins. And they're paying through the nose and they're making like they were so impressed with this this little bowl of beans. And it occurred to me, they're impressed because they never had an Italian grandmother. Also, yeah. Because my Italian grandmother could take a, a, a dollar head of schedule and turn it into a first-class meal. But these people were so impressed because the Neapolitan who owned the restaurant, because we're a, a nationality of actors. Oh, signora, I make this for you. It's special. The beans. He got it probably from the shop, right? It's the same thing of beans. But he put the show on and the beautiful plate and he came out with his... $5,000 student called them Signora and kissed hands in the whole nine yards. So because they packaged it with all moss and ceremonia, they bought into it. Yep. Had they been in North Jersey and some Italian lady in a pizzeria who was cooking in the back said, oh, I made some of these for me. You're a regular customer. Do you want to try it? They would have totally turned their nose down. Yep. Because the missing element was the Italian grandmother, which showed that the peasant food made by the peasant is the great conquest. And you're always climbing the mountain to try to get to that point. Because the person who works the land has the knowledge. Yes. They didn't have the Italian grandmother who made the beans, but they didn't have the Italian grandfather who made the wine. Yeah. Yes. Even if you had the relative who made the worst wine possible, you understand the process, which kind of removes some of the magic from it. Yeah. So what I'm saying is them missing that 
they have to rely on all kinds of outside sources to give them a score, yes. to tell them that it's worthy. Am I correct? Would you agree with that? A hundred percent. I like what you said a lot. It's giving me anxiety because now I have like, I have like 50 things I want to add to it. That's <laughs> why we're here. That's why no, we're here. You're a hundred percent right. I mean, yes, to be fair, everything is in a context. So, you know, people love to be, they love it. They love it. For instance, my father, um, very humble guy, but he was very, very classy. Sometimes people will come into the store and I would sell wine and I would tell them A, B, and C. 99% of the time, no problem. But sometimes people need to be romanced. Sure. Politics. So, and my father would tell them a story. Uh, there was a Sicilian wine called Utis and he would tell them the story of Utis and where it comes from. These people were blown away. That, that's the key is selling products in America, the middle. Yeah. Americans aren't buying the products, they're buying the story. Yes. They go into your store and they try to preach to you, well, I was in Tuscany and I got this soup for Tuscany and I got this Barolo with $800 a bottle. And it's not criticizing the Barolo. No. You could have switched it out with Mountain Dew with some of these people and they wouldn't have known the difference. Am I correct in that? Well, 100%. And nothing against Mountain Dew, but you know, it is what it is. No, 100%. I, listen, I always said, don't sell the product, sell the imagery. Now, I would never lie to a person. Like there's a, there are a few handful of things in my store I don't want to carry, but I have to carry because people want it. And what am I going to do? But I try to limit that. If people come in, I will tell the truth. Don't buy that. But I know how people, I'll never lie, but I know what people want to hear. People, especially wine novices, they think they want dry. It's actually not true. They actually want something sweeter. When you get more advanced, you start to appreciate the sweetness of wines. You know, when you find there's two extremes, they like the same thing for different reasons. So a wine novice and a wine connoisseur will like sweet wines for different reasons. When a wine person comes in, they're so scared. They say, oh my God, oh my God, is it sweet? I know that they think they want dry, like they, they, they want Chianti, but even though that's not what they really want, it's actually kind of bitter. It's not bitter, but they, they would say it's kind of acidic to them. So when they say, oh, is it dry? And I said, yes. And I go, oh, did you want something sweet? They go, oh, no, 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 no. And I go, right, well, this is it. So right away, I just had them convince themselves. It's amazing that the, the psychology, especially when you're dealing with alcohol, my God, the things the people we see, you know, when someone comes in the door, I know exactly what they're going to say, what they're going to want, if they're going to be a pain in the ass. Because you're just, you're used to a psychology. My father was a hairdresser. I mean, you're sitting in a psychologist's chair when you get your hair done. Yeah, that's true. Isn't that you know? the truth? Yeah. That yes. is absolutely true. Hairdressers and florists know absolutely everything about yeah. everyone. As a wine seller, I agree that I have wine with food. If I have leftover wine after my food, I will continue finishing it. That's separate. But what I would say with someone who wants to drink wine without food is go for something that's lower in alcohol and something with a little fruitiness and it's more easygoing, something that's not too, you know, uh, uh, it's not much of a commitment. So if you're having like a Riesling, Rieslings, you can get one for 10% alcohol, 11% alcohol. So you could do something like that. I would not have a Brunello, for instance, without food. Because it changes the flavor profile. Yeah, also for a main reason. Well, first of all, I think if you're having a Brunello without food, you're missing out. Second of all, it's, it's kind of, you'll notice there'll be a void as you're drinking the Brunello. Because there's nothing complimenting it. That's interesting. You want a steak or something like that. Yes, exactly. A steak. I feel like you're thinking about it too much. I've never felt a void <laughs> when I'm drinking wine. But if I had to go to a bar, I would like a Campadian soda or another drink like that. Then just have wine without a steak. Like a Barolo and a steak. A good steak. Grass, that to me is like the, the apex. Yes, no, no, no. It, it's better. 
I'm not saying it's not, it's better, but I'm not saying it's like not drinkable because there's no food. I'm in the row camp. I can open up. It depends on the bottle of wine. Maybe I am selecting. Maybe it's a bad You're both from maybe. It's a thing. <laughs> That's right. No, right. seriously. I don't know. Johnny Depp spent $30,000 a month on wine. Maron. And I don't think he was drinking it with food. <laughs> I don't think so either. Maybe like Lay's potato chips. I'm gonna, listen, I guarantee you 90% of people who listen to this who are under 45 or 50 are going to be in the John Rosella camp. On this. Oh, yeah. I am very much. And I, I, I'm not confessing. I am a minority of minorities. It is just a personal credential opinion. That's but I will it. say, I will, I will agree with you that on this, Pat, it is a different experience. Even if I go out, like if I'm out, I, I'm a scotch drinker, so I drink mostly scotch. But if I'm out and somebody opens a bottle of wine, whatever, and we're just BSing over a bottle of wine, it's like in Italy when they bring you the olives and the little, you know, uh, bites of food and whatever. <laughs> yeah, it makes a big difference to me the experience of the wine. I can understand where you're, you're, you're missing something when you're not eating it, even if it's a matter of a snack. I like your idea for pocket tadal. I think that's a great one. We could start selling like little packets. Tadal was the greatest overlooked product in America. <laughs> this is probably true. We never capitalized on tadals. You know what? Can I ask you one thing for the wine store? Yes. Have you ever thought of having a tadal section with the wines? So we tried everything, but it, it, I forgot what what ranking it is. But uh, wine and liquor is one of the most regulated things in the United States. Like, so it's very, very regulated. Um, we tried everything. My father, when we opened the store, he wanted the big bote with the big barrels, and people come there and they bring wine. We got shut down right away. When we would do tastings, we were not allowed to sell anything but wine and liquor. By the way, we can't sell olive oil by law. So. Uh, we do tastings, we would have food. My mother would make this food and people loved it. We couldn't sell it, but people loved the food. They would come, they would have breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And they would be like, would you like to try some wine? They go, no, I don't drink. <laughs> so, you know, so, so yeah, I would, but you're right. With, with the tarali, uh, I love roasted chickpeas with, uh, with wine. There's, so there's all these great things. And, and it's crazy. There's so many wine bars. They don't do things like that. I go to wine bar. I never seen tarali in a wine bar. Yeah. I just see the same. Thank you. That's why I would have a wine bar with Daraos, Southern cheeses. Yeah. What's the word charcuterie? What do you call? What do they call salami now? Charcuterie. Yeah, I can't. I'll never get that word. So just take it from what. <laughs> we'll call it salami. Olives. That's my thing. But like I said, again, you can't take this from the guy who ordered a grasshopper. We were in Miami. We were actually in a hip place. Yeah. I, I wasn't. I just had the relief for this. I just said I just want to order it, and it was a big scene. It was a big to do. They found it kind of endearing in a strange sense. So don't please don't go to the bank on what I'm saying about wine. I'm just saying my own personal credential opinion on this. Let the games begin. Mediaset Italia has the most exciting, high octane, full drama game shows and reality TV this fall. With new seasons of celebrities stuck together 24-7 on Grande Fratello Vip. Testing your smarts on Chi Vuole Essere Milionario with Jerry Scotti. And the biggest talents in Italy discovered with Tu Si Che Vales. Plus, more trivia tests on Caduta Libera and important stories and exclusive interviews with live Nonella Ladurso. D'Urso. DirecTV has the Italian TV you love. Get Mediaset Italia a la carte for $10 a month plus taxes or the Italian Direct Package for $20 a month plus taxes. Visit directtv.com forward slash mediaset or call 1-877-912-2222.
2702 to learn more and subscribe. World Direct a la carte service requires activation of a qualifying base package. For new customers, equipment lease, activation, early termination, equipment non-return, and other charges and restrictions apply. Call 1-877-912-2702 or visit att.com for full details. Brosillo does have a point too, though, about, about uh, lower, because it is a lower alcohol. Friends, I can't drink. I love scotch. I, there's no way I can have like a few scotches. I mean, there's just not going to happen. I'll be, I'll, I'll die. Yeah. What else is as drinkable and uh, like goes down as easy as wine? A grasshopper. <laughs> <laughs> and grasshoppers, Pat. How do you say grasshopper in Malays? <laughs> oh, wait. Uh, a grasshopper is a grillo. In, in Molay's? I can go to the bank on that? Well, it, no. It, I thought Grillo was a cricket, no? Oh, wait. Mm-hmm. No, Grillo is a cricket. Never mind. I don't know. Are they different animals? I didn't even think about that. You got to ask Nona. Tell Nona Romana we need the Molay's word for grasshopper. All right. I'll, I'll go call her right right <laughs> after this. I promise. Ro makes a great point. What, what else is out there? Like, wine has become sort of a go-to casual drink for so many people, you know? And, and yes. I was really fascinated on the blog you know, the blog is called Pizza and Coffee, and I highly recommend everybody check it out, particularly if you love a good Italian-American rant. Well, thank you. But you have a great piece there on pairing drink with pizza. Mm-hmm. And you're obviously passionate about pizza. You, you, you write about it like a, like a, an Einstein of the topic. I mean, that's, oh, you, you and Pat could do a whole other series on pizza. You said something in, in the blog about pairing it with a wine that's natural to the area around Campania, a little bubbly, a little light, lesser alcohol. It, for me, that was something that dawned on me because my family would call that like soda pop wine, like a table wine that was, you know, a little bit bubbly, a little bit fresh. Yeah. Gragnano, Gragnano, later. Yeah, exactly. And it is kind of the only one that you could have a pizza or then maybe go to a beer. So thank you, Pat. So we were actually, I'm proud to say that uh, my brother and I were probably the first people, retail at least, there was maybe one, two restaurants that had it about like 15, 16 years ago. There's people maybe outside of the town of Granada to sell Granada retail. Wow. Probably anywhere in the world. There isn't that much anyway. And we we became known for that. And then when the Neapolitan pizza explosion happened, people found out about Granada through the restaurants. And there weren't that many places that even sold it. So then they would come to us from, from all over. Yeah. But you really should. Pizza was originally paired with Granada. Yes. Pizza did not become married to beer until all the Americans were stationed in the military in Naples during World War II. And now the Italians have adopted beer with pizza, which goes fantastic. Yes. But Gragnano is a frittanda, what would you call it? Sparkling wine from the Sorrento Peninsula, where my mother's family is from, and my grandmother's side is from. And I love it. It's like my favorite wine in the whole wide world. I love Gragnano. With pizza, it explodes. It explodes. Yeah. If they said to me, what are you going to have the last? If I was dying, they said, what's going to be your last glass of wine? I would have a glass of Gragnano with a pizza. I've been yelled at in Naples for ordering Gragnano at inappropriate times. Hmm. They said to me, you can't order Gragnano, but I love Gragnano. What do you think about that? Do you think that there's any chance that, that sparkling red wines might take off with pizza or, we, or is that gone? It should be for, for a million reasons. One, you don't need to have it just with pizza. For instance, people have already become accustomed to Lambrusco and they moved away from the sweet Lambrusco, which is also great too, not the commercial kinds, but they make more artisanal dry kinds too. And you can easily substitute Gragnano for Lambrusco. And what can you have Lambrusco with? Salumi and cheese. So you don't need to have it just with pizza. So I do think it should explode. I just don't think that there's enough production of it. 
And they're nice people. I like Emilio Romani. I would grant them the privilege of putting their wine next to a Neapolitan pizza. Yeah, it's a great place, by the way. You know what's funny? When yeah, they're very nice people. When I when I went, I never I was never that big into fresh pasta, generally speaking. I, I love it, obviously, but I always prefer dry. It depends the occasion. In the Chilento area, Salerno down, they do have a, a fresh pasta tradition. They love their lagane. They love their fusilli. With the, they, they make it. I used to have when I would wake up with the umbrella rod when I was a kid. But I always loved dry pasta. But when I went to Emilia-Romagna and I had their food, granted it's different wheat. They use a soft wheat compared to the Durham wheat that we use in the South. But I was blown away. I could not believe how good the food is there. It really is, it really is a exquisite food. And yes, and the Lambrusco. So would the, would the Gragnano take over? I think so. I just don't think there's enough of it. Well, there's not a, lot, there's not a big production. I would love to see an American. I know and see people in Italy go berserk when I say stuff like this because that's when they go into heritage mode. I would love to see an American wine in a Gragnano style. They do make it, but it's usually more. I don't know if I, don't know if I want to use the word boisterous. It's more like they make sparkling Shiraz, but they're usually too full, too fruity because everything in America is bigger and excessive, and it's kind of missed the point. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. the whole point of Gragnano is that it's not you're not you're not it's not compromising, and it's more that you're enjoying it. Uh, lower, it's a little lower in alcohol. So they do make it. I, I, I just think it takes just like Neapolitan pizza. You know, people have tried. In New York, the only real places to get pizza, there were a few places. One was called Luzzo. One was called Una Pizza Napoletana, which left and then came back. There were very few places. And then Caste opened up. And the funny story about Caste is I met them the year before at Una Pizza Napoletana. The two owners of Caste, they, they went their own ways now. But when I met them, I was like, yo, these guys are on to something. Something very big is about to happen. And it did. And then, you know, it's funny to see American people eat pizza with knives and forks because out of what happened, nothing. It was all... Yes, it was great pizza, but it was all the right timing and the right marketing. That's the key to everything, because it was told to people that Keste was going to be the biggest thing to hit since Lombardi's opened. That's what New Yorker magazine or whichever one it was. And then boom, pizza and then Gragnano, not, not as much as pizza, but now everyone's eating Neapolitan pizza like it's going out of style. Yeah, that, but that's true. Keste was really the catalyst for that. Like, you know, like uh, like Magnolia Bakery created that cupcake boom yes, in yeah. New York. And Keste created the pizza boom, the Neapolitan pizza boom. Can I just do a public service announcement for my own agenda? Mm-hmm. And for those of you out there, Keste is Neapolitan, but this is? Yes. Which proves that the Neapolitan language is far superior to what you hear on Rye. So if you didn't <laughs> know why you should study Neapolitan, the fact that the number one Yes, that gay stay is an Abidon word. You should have known that. If you did not know that when you heard that, you need to study Neapolitan. I'm done. And, and in study. true to form Neapolitan style, the two owners started together and then separated. Oh, wow. And now That's, they all they have their own pizzerias. Yeah. And- <laughs> we don't work well in sandboxes, but that being said. But it did revolutionize pizza in the city. It really did. And, and I mean, look look around you now in our lifetime. I, I, I think about, we talk about this passion for food and wine and pairing and the presentation of a, Gigi to Bean as a luxury to an audience that never knew it. You know, I remember growing up when the American restaurant world discovered arugula and, you know, for it was weeds until it was the most expensive salad you can get. But for us, it was salad. Mm-hmm. And I feel the same way about Neapolitan pizza because, you know, in our travels around the country in Italian America, every city, when we look for the kind of Italian spots now, has at least one really hot restaurant that is billing itself as authentic Neapolitan pizza. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's Bianco's in Phoenix and there's the guy in Atlanta and people line up for hours. And I, I haven't tried many of them, 
but I think, you know, growing up being in Naples every year, it's a big bar to set to say your Neapolitan pizza, Neapolitan style and Neapolitan pizza, I think are two different terms, but I think now, yeah, people expect to be able to get what they think of as a Neapolitan pie anywhere. It's becoming sort of a mainstream expectation in at least in North Northeast and, and throughout the country, really. Yes. Uh, and, 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 I, and I think that's a good thing because uh, before the podcast, we we're talking about if we were to leave New York, you know, People say, would you live, the only place, I, I either live in the city or I live in nature. I, I have, a, you know, that's, I'm all or nothing kind of guy. I've always loved California, although they have similar problems than we have in New York. But if I move somewhere, I tell people, I'm like, I need to know, can I get good octopus? <laughs> what I mean by that is, well, how's, how's the food? You know, I can't, I cannot go somewhere and eat poorly. I need to eat well. So that's a good thing that it's exploding. So now it's, it makes it easier. You don't have to be in New York to get the pizza. One thing I want to talk about, I was actually mentioning today. So the actual blog I have is a uh, Piazza life. The site is pizza and coffee, pizza and coffee. I just put it up as a rent and I don't, I don't add to it, but I, I, I was talking about this today. I actually remember I wrote a thing about seven years ago, pizza predictions that I made true. And I would actually like to list some of them. Great. One of them was that I, I would have been wildly misunderstood and I, as I was, but that's, that goes with this territory. There was, there was going to be an explosion in the Neapolitan pizzerias that happened. The explosion would die down and some people will get sick of it, which some people are like, oh, I'm done with it. Because as Pat was talking about, thing has becomes trendy. But food is not trendy. I hate with a passion. Foodie and food porn. Food, you should not, it's not pornography. This is how people eat. If you understood it, you wouldn't view it as a perversion. Mm. So, I, you know, anyway, so people, some people got sick of it. But some of the people, when it came, I predicted that they would insult it. I used to, I used to be belong to a uh, site called Slice Serious Eats. It's a blog. And I used to contribute regularly to it. They did an interview with me. And, and, and um, some people didn't like it. Some people were like, what is this? You know, I'm from New York or I'm from here. And this is the pizza that we have. And I'm like, well, actually, this is the original. I don't know what you're hating. The real pizzerias will remain after all the hype settles. And this is very important. The decline of Italian culture in Italy by Italians happening at the same time that America awakens and discovers better stuff resulting in some Americans incorrectly concluding Neapolitan pizza in America and Italy were the same in quality all along. <laughs> That's so true. That's another t-shirt quote. Yeah. You got two t-shirts today. <laughs> That's like a book. Wait, say, wow. That's a wow. Thank you. So as Italy falls, because, you know, you're Italian, you're in Italy, you're a kid, you have 3,000 years of the most, let's just say, you, you can't say qualitatively, even though that's true. Quantitatively, nothing compares. Just Rome alone has more history and art than most countries put together. 68% of UNESCO World Heritage Sites are in Italy? It's all there. 57. 57, thank you. So they have this 3,000 years on their shoulders. It's much easier to throw it away and just eat Pringles, which they did. Oh, mangiamo the Pringles. And look, I love Pringles. There's nothing wrong with it. But it's easier to throw it away. And I used to tell people as a kid, not just in Italy, everything I say, oh, you're crazy. Crazy is how little people explain the big things around them. I used to tell people, I was like, yo, man, you're throwing away greatness. You're throwing all this. What's Meatless Mondays besides a secular version of you know, abstaining from meat on Fridays at the Catholic Church? It's the same thing. Yeah. In Italy now on Sundays, they have brunch. So because everything in this whole world, we don't, we don't live in a society where you can prosper. Everything's part-time job nation, room, roommate nation. No one can afford to go ahead. So what are you going to do? You can't have a family Sunday dinner anymore. Yeah. They have brunch in Italy. What's happening is 
there's something going on there now that they're drinking American mass culture. Like, like disgusting. They're sucking it through a straw. It's disgusting. Yeah, but I think part of it is they want to emulate the lightness of American culture. Mm-hmm. They come here and they see like, you know, someone, I, I asked somebody who lived in the United States for a while from Rome. I said, what was your biggest impression of the U.S.? He goes, I could go out and walk my dog in the morning in my pajamas and no one thought less of me. Yeah. Yeah. And I was like, wow. So, I mean, it, I, and one thing I said in the all time is that Italy is far from a perfect country in any sense of the word. But I think there's a, a, a cultural lightness to America that now that Italians are more exposed to us because of, of uh, social media and culture like that, that's somewhat attractive. But that doesn't equate to brunch. Do brunch on a Saturday. It's, it's complicated. But then I say all the time, it's like, who was the first Neapolitan to use a tomato? Yeah. I mean, it's not native to the area. Somebody one day said, we're not going to make a minister maritata on a Sunday. We're going to make a pot of gravy. Sauce, well, you're happy. A pot of gravy. And, you know, we adapted other foods. Are we going to adapt other cultures? I know if Columbus had brought over ginger, would we be eating like galmai with ginger sauce? I don't know. You know, cultures are going to evolve, right? And how much, you know, we have a frozen picture in time. You know, I just, I don't know. I don't know. A complicated issue. There's also the sort of subconscious decision to emulate globalized cultures and take the things that you like from what you see now on this wireless Wi-Fi world. But then there's also something that I'm pretty passionate about. I know you are, Pat. This idea of the methodology and uh, lifestyle choices in terms of how we supply our own food and what is sacrificed to that. And what I mean by that is like, you know, this arc of food products that's the Italian that's the outgrowth of the Italian slow food movement this idea of preserving indigenous or heirloom ingredients and methodologies and productions that are being lost at the altar of speed and efficiency because you know farming practices have gotten to the point where you can grow a lot more easier so the products that sell in a globalized market are the ones that get the land the farmers then have to either collectivize or adopt or whatever and you know things that have been grown in an area and been a staple of that cuisine for a long time, they just get lost over time because those small farmers can't survive and compete. No. So you know now you've got this arc of ingredients where they're literally cataloging and like seed saving to make sure that some of this stuff isn't lost. And it's a tragedy because there's grape varietals that are you know indigenous to certain areas that are gone. There's types of beans that disappear, tomatoes. I mean, I don't want to eat grapes with pits in it. I've ruled out a whole group of heirloom grapes <laughs> for my own selfishness. Yeah, and that's what happens. I mean, think about it. Like, I remember as a kid, all the grapes had pits, and now none of the grapes have pits. Nothing has pits anymore. And I don't, I don't want to go back. <laughs> I probably should go back. Is that the right thing to do? It makes for a great question because so much of this idea, like discovering a Cagnano wine and it comes to America. And people always talk about the quality of Italian wine as it compares globally. But the truth of the matter is some of the best stuff is stuff that never even makes it into this market because mm-hmm. it, it's produced locally in small amounts and it's consumed mm-hmm. locally and, it, and it's a healthy business prospect there. But then there's also ingredients that if they don't catch on, the competition for space, for arable land, for labor, for people that are going to actually work that land and farm that land it makes it harder for them to keep producing stuff that's only going to sell locally. And so they got to go to this international market and we lose so much of our, of our heritage and our tradition. hundred percent. And there's another thing I want to add, which is scary. Part of speaking of the international, international market. I remember finding out this very depressing fact. Um, I didn't mention, I did a blood orange video on, on my Instagram profile for my wine store. 
talking about, and I didn't mention this, but I'm talking about Sicily, you know, a lot of Sicilian farmers have to throw away or stop producing, or throw away the oranges or stop producing the oranges, which is the best in the world, because they have to buy from X, and, X Y, and Z countries because of quotas that the governments make. Why? Why? Yeah. That's insane. So they have to, we got the best oranges in the world, but you know what? We can't make too much. FDR slaughtered six and a half million pigs to keep the prices high when there was starvation at that time. And that's what they're doing in Italy, but they're also starving the character and identity of the Italian people. Italy has no compass. My argument is Italy has no children. No. Kids that are born go overseas and they have their compass is busted. They have no vision for the future. If you say them where we're going to be in 20 years, we're going to be finished. And they're going to be finished because that's the mentality they have. Yeah. Like, you know, there's no, where do we go from here? I mean, you know, I had my experiment, and I'm sure I'll refer to this in the future, how nobody likes the hard Neapolitan Christmas cookies because you got to dunk them. Yeah. And I made the soft versions this Christmas. And my mother told me, my brother said to her, what did brother do this year? The cookies are so much better. They're always hard as a rock and I never like to eat. So my cookie had to evolve. I had to soften my cookie. Yeah. To make it palatable to the modern palate. Mm-hmm. Because nobody wants to sit around anymore. Because really, the Neapolitan hard cookies, I mean, everybody makes jokes about, you know, the, the Rococo that takes a tooth out. The whole idea was when you had no TV, no electricity, when you sat around the fire at the Christmas time of 200 years ago, with your glass of white wine, you took your Neapolitan Christmas cookie and you dunked it in wine, not even coffee or milk. So what do we do? If, if we keep the cookie recipes the way they are, they're going to they're going to go extinct. Yeah. And the same thing with, you know, we go back to the wine conversation. You know, how do, how do we adapt? Even with Italian food, how, how do adaptation work? Well, for, for me, first of all, it has to make sense. You, you, were, you were talking about the tomato. Tomato was not Italian, but it made sense more than any other culture to have the tomato in Italian culture. You don't think there had to be a huge argument? Can you imagine that Sunday? When you said, I'm not making the next amount of that, I'm making this, this sauce for the tomato. Yeah, but for 100 years after it arrived, they thought it was poisonous. It was poisonous. I, I mentioned that in my, I did a chicken parm video relating to eggplant parm. And I talk about that because there's, a, there's also another crazy thing that people say that pizza is not from Naples. They say it's from Greece, it's from this, it's from that. And I say that bread, people topping bread has always existed. But the Neapolitan pizza as it is with the cornicione and the way they, 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 they stretch it, et cetera, is Neapolitan. On top of that, they were the first ones to eat the tomatoes because they were so poor and desperate. Everyone else deemed them poisonous. They're the first ones to eat it. So by definition, the pizza, as we know it, clearly is Neapolitan. But yes, they didn't eat it. But at some point they did. But my point is it, it amalgamates. It, it, it makes sense. So for instance, I love bok choy. I saw this show on, on TV. I think it's called Two Greedy Italians. But the guy said, he goes, he, he wants to be all modern and everything. And he goes, oh, no, but people don't like bok choy. I love bok choy. Because people don't like bok choy, but, you know, we use ingredients that aren't ours. Agreed, but does bok choy mix mesh with mix in with the other Italian things? I don't know if it doesn't. Are you going to wear a tuxedo and high top sneaker? I don't know. You know, my grandmother said one thing that amazed her mother when her mother came here: chili. Chili. The idea of cooking beans with chopped meat. Hmm. Yeah, she was fascinated by it. It never entered their mind to have beans with chopped meat. Hmm. So I'm sure if you went back to Italy, someone's all oh, this disgusting American. But I'm and it makes sense in the Neapolitan mind, right? Like beans. Yeah. I'm sure an Italian now would make a big deal with it. But, bro, did your gram? is there any American dishes your grandma has adapted that she likes, like pumpkin pie or something like that? Oh, a lot. She loves apple pie. Uh, my nona loves McDonald's. Wow. Yeah, see, that's... Like, you can't tell her that there's a better deal than the dollar menu at McDonald's. 
My grandmother was a fanatic for hot dogs with mustard. Thought they were the best thing in the world. Yeah, my grandfather loves the hot dogs. Like you got, you got to understand that Nonna Romana will like kind of eat anything because, like, I mean, especially if you tell her you're about to throw it out. (laughs) That's the real temptation. That's thank you, World War Two. Absolutely, she's gonna save it, and she'll like you know if it's sautéable with broccoli rabe, she'll do that. You know, she she actually is very adventurous when it comes to food. She'll try like a lot of different cultures food. She likes Chinese food. She likes fried rice. She doesn't see the big deal with sushi. I gave it to her once. And even though in Puglia we eat a lot of raw fish, she went, I don't go crazy. (laughs) Um, But she loves, you know, she she loves a lot of different things that are a little bit metagon. She loves Entenmann's. Oh, my. Oh, yeah. Yes. Italian-Americans, yes. That's got to be a New York thing, too. That's got to be a New York thing. Yeah. She cannot resist an Entenmann's cake for anything. That was the emergency company this year. Yeah, company cake. But my my parents like don't like Americana more than my grandmother. My my father, forget it. My dad has been here longer than my mother. My dad's been here since 69 when he was 14. Wow. And he hates American everything. Vito will look will look at almost any food other than Italian food and go, that's dog food. <laughs> I mean, it, it begs a bigger point, right? You know, we we talk a lot about the difference between Italian cuisine and Italian American cuisine, and what's authentic and what's quote unquote genuine. Which you know, anthropologically, you can't put the title on anything. And I guess the question becomes, where are we going? You know, what is the future of cuisine on a global scale and Italian cuisine in specific? Because I argue that Italian-American food or Italian-Australian food or any of these things, regional adaptations, they're as authentic as a plate that you would get in the heart of Naples or in Bologna or anywhere else. I would love to know what the Italian-Australians consider. What do they eat in Australia? Marmite? They do eat Marmite. Yeah. I I can't see an Italian eating Marmite. I don't know if they call it Vegemite or Marmite there. One of of the other. Do we have Australian listeners? I often wonder. We There's do. a huge Italian community in Australia. But do they listen to us? They, yeah, they, yeah, there yeah. is, but do they? I mean, we chart in Australia. Yeah, I don't know what number. So we're. if you're our, if you're Italo Australian, contact us and let us know what is Italo Australian food. So what your parents, as we would say, off the boat from Italy, like about Australian food? Grilled kangaroo? Do they have kangaroo? Could you put kangaroo in a gravy? Did you really just say grilled kangaroo, Pat? Yeah, could you make, because kangaroo looks like a rabbit. Could you make it like a rabbit? Yes, I've had grilled kangaroo. I had it in Iceland. Is it good? I, I didn't find it tasted good. I, I, it didn't taste like rabbit to me, which I love rabbit. I think in Italy, by the way, they had to sell rabbits by law with the head on because during the war, they were selling cats because people were starving as rabbits. Wow, that's wild. Yeah. I've never heard that. I love rabbit. I could eat rabbit every day. I think rabbit's totally undervalued food. Yeah. And, and like, you know, that's, that's another point. It's like these ingredients that we fight to preserve things that we make here that get criticized in Italy, but the Italians don't realize sometimes is those are the ways and, and ingredients that we cooked 150 years ago. They're just, yeah. you know, brought over here. So hundred oh, percent. So many people in Italy poo poo stuff. I said that for years. Why do Italian Americans have a, a habit of putting grated cheese on spaghetti and clams? If you go back to the very early Neapolitan accounts of spaghetti and clams as street vendor food, they were made in a very primitive way, and grated cheese was, was sprinkled on top. Is it the optimum? 
that's a matter that's a palatial question of the palate, I guess, of, you know, uh, if, it, if, they, if you think it tastes right. Uh, is it done in Italy today? No, but in 1850s Naples, people put grated cheese on spaghetti and clams. Yeah. That's just fact. You can't, you know, the, the history tells us. I think people don't get it as an Italian thing because, again, it goes back to the quantity thing. Look, man, we got like just a few hundred types of cardoons. Yeah. People don't even know what cardoons is. Yeah. You know, we have hundreds of ways to prepare eggplants. We have more ways to prepare eggplants than people have dishes. <laughs> In most cuisines, I call them, and I love, I love all kinds of food. I prefer Italian, but I love all kinds of food. But most cuisines are chicken and rice cultures. Because, And the reason why I say that, because somehow people are like, oh, Italy is just pasta and pizza. That's not mathematically true. When you make a list, it's not true. It's actually the exact opposite. It's what we sold you because you liked it. Right. That's what they don't understand. 100%. Someone said to me, how do you eat Italian food every day? And someone who grew up in California, they thought that we had spaghetti and meatballs and lasagna. And that was like we we were a two-dish cuisine. It's sad. I don't want to say it's laughable. There's no food in the world that is more diverse. diverse, Not Not even close. I mean, I think, John Luca, you go to the numeric strength of, of our diversity, and I think mm-hmm. it's going to be really interesting to see where our cuisine goes, how it evolves in Italy and here. And and I think the mutual respect between the two and the exchange, that's part of what we are as Italian-Americans, is sort of that bridge between the two. So before we, we go, you know, obviously people can find you on Piazza Life, find you at the store, we hope, and, and come see you if they're in New York. His store? It's worth the trip to New York. Yeah. Oh, wow. Thank you. That's true. Boarded up. It's still boarded up after the riots. I didn't take all the boarding down. But uh, when we take it down, we, it'll look like it, like Pat knows it to look. Thank you. Wow. All right. It's got character. <laughs> That's right. It's got yeah. character. Yeah. And it is, a, it's definitely a destinational place to go. So I hope our listeners out there, as the weather uh, stays pretty cold here on the Northeast, but wherever you are, you know, it's, it's winter time, a nice hearty meal. And you've got some great recommendations for wine. And more importantly than the recommendations, you got to check out Piazza Life. You got to check out Pizza and Coffee and get the book, Wine Made Easy. You're just a, a real pleasure to read and listen to, John Luca. So thank you for coming on the show. And I hope in the future you'll come back and uh, I could just hear you and Pat ranting about multitude of topics. It would be great stuff. Ranting has such a negative connotation. <laughs> yeah, I know. yeah, we have a positive word that <laughs> ranting. Crazy Conversing. people rant philosophizing yeah that's better that, i'll give you a pass on that one ranting see that it's always these covert little insults that they <laughs> whatever we call it we'd Man. love to have you back on oh uh, thank you well thank you and i, I was su- supposed to finish my second project last year and then COVID happened i hope to finish it so hopefully when i do i can not only uh send you guys part of this project but i would like to rejoin you guys again anytime come on and yeah, we'll make come it on back. We'll make it yeah let, let us have the exclusive on the announcement we'd love it Oh, thank you so much. No, it's been a pleasure. I hope you guys go visit Vino Veritas. And uh, and like I say, pick out the book and check out the blog because there's so much good stuff on there. And I've been learning as I've been reading it. So it's been a great conversation. A lot to think about around the authenticity and future of our cuisine, our wine, and really our cultural identity, which is why we're here for the show. So hope everybody's enjoyed. Thanks for listening. And we'll see you next week. Ah, see that you're born and-